Welcome to the St. John's Hoxton podcast. We are a local church in East London, here to be a beacon of hope for Hoxton. And our mission is to worship God, make disciples, share Jesus and transform Hoxton. Good morning. It's really great to be here. My name's Rob. I'm a member of the church and I've been kicking around at St. John's Hoxton for seven or eight years now, I think. Happy Sunday to you all. That reading is really intense. How did you find it? Listening to our lovely congregation members reading it there, I was impressed that they made it all the way through. Um, It's not easy. Do you feel like lamenting at the moment? Because I tell you what, I feel like celebrating. And there's one very good reason why. My child has gone back to school. And let me tell you, you know, lockdown, we've had three lockdowns, seven months of homeschooling, and the lament has been real. I love my kid, he's amazing, my wife and I are absolutely blessed, but homeschooling is hard. Plus, it's spring in London, and things feel, things feel good. If you don't feel like lamenting today, um, then this passage has something for you, because verse 22 Great is your faithfulness. You know, I could spend the whole of the next 15 minutes or so just on those four verses. But I wonder how much does God's faithfulness really mean unless we engage with the storm, unless we engage with our suffering and the suffering of the world around us? How much does God's faithfulness really mean? So today we will look at Lamentations 3 in the face. Um, We will spend some time listening to the lament of the author, thinking about what it meant for him, what it means for us, and how in that context, God's faithfulness is all the more wonderful. So Father, I ask for your blessing as I share this word today. And I pray that you would bless everyone who's listening. Amen. Suffering around us. The author is really going for it. Traditionally, Lamentations is ascribed to the prophet Jeremiah, um, but it's also possible that it was written by a group of writers writing for a ceremonial purpose. And you can really kind of hear the performative nature of the words. The author is feeling the pain on behalf of Israel whose capital city, Jerusalem, has been destroyed by the Babylonians about 600 years before Jesus was born. What must that have been like? City, culture, history, identity destroyed. Family and loved ones killed or enslaved. Your identity as a people all but wiped out. The author is playing the prophetic role, embodying and representing and giving voice to the people, modeling this journey of pain. And in his mind, that pain comes from the hands of God. And perhaps for him, this is the worst aspect of the whole story. The author is insistent that it is God who is causing this suffering. Surely he has turned his hand against me He has made my flesh and skin waste away. He has broken my bones. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stones. He has made my teeth grind on the gravel. It's incredibly powerful. It's evocative. It's a little bit terrifying. Is he right? 
Is God really a bear lying in wait, a lion in hiding who turns aside to tear the author, to tear Jerusalem to pieces? And if so, why? What justification can there possibly be? In what way could this ever be a proportionate response? The author sees God as a God who directs all things, good and bad, and sees the destruction and devastation on the scale that's represented in this passage as the just response to the sin and faithlessness of Israel over many generations, as foretold by the prophets. To the author, this is cause and effect, and it makes sense. It fits the narrative of the God of judgment who disciplines and leads unrepentant Israel into darkness. So although it is God who is meeting out the punishment, the why is all about Israel and its faithlessness. The destruction of Jerusalem, the holy city, was to the Jews and Jeremiah just punishment for them turning their back on God and his promises. And that's a theological way of articulating and understanding this narrative. It can be hard for us to engage with, particularly because our own narrative and relationship with God through Jesus is entirely different. But the narrative is more than one of Old Testament theology. It is also a powerful personal cry of despair in the face of the destruction of everything that the writer believed in. Now, most of us don't know what it feels like to have our cities and culture destroyed, to lose our family to slavery or war. But there are wars. There is slavery today. And the destruction of culture is happening right now in war zones around the world, in this very city. If you've lost a loved one, a family or a friend due to COVID or any other reason, then you will know what this pain feels like. This is not distant. And the response of the writer, that cry of despair, that rush to blame God, that deep agony is not distant. All of us experience suffering. We experience the loss and pain that the prophet speaks out, and in many ways, he speaks on our behalf. And so in the depths of the writer's despair, in the middle of this passage, we have verse 22. It's an incredible moment, and I think of it as a whisper in the storm, a very tiny word, but... And it's like applying the handbrake as your car is hurtling around a corner or pulling the ripcord on a parachute. But God has driven me into darkness without any light. God has enveloped me in bitterness. God has made my chains heavy. I have become a laughing stock to all peoples. My soul is bereft of peace. I've forgotten what happiness is. But this I call to mind. And therefore, I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. If the writer can say this after the destruction of his city, culture, friends and family, two chapters and 21 verses of remarkable grief and anger, then this ceaseless, steadfast love of God must be special indeed. 
His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. This is the final word on suffering. Wherever you think suffering comes from, the mercy of God, which is new every morning. If the suffering is sent to you by God, then his mercy is greater and triumphs over justice, over judgment. If the suffering comes at the hand of another, then his mercy is greater. If we inflict suffering on ourselves or on others, then his mercy is greater. And it comes every single morning. Morning here, you know, for me it has two, it has two meanings, two concepts. Certainly there is that sense that weeping comes in the night, but joy comes in the morning. Weeping is bound, but joy comes in the morning. But also, right, morning happens every day. It's an everyday thing we can look forward to. Both aspects are important. Um, one of my favorite verses uh, from Psalm 68 says, blessed be the Lord who daily bears our burden. And I love both of the images in there. You know, the burden carrying, but the daily bit for me is really, really important. Mercy is not passive and it's not a one-off. It is the continuous act of coming alongside and relieving the strain that we carry. And the writer of Lamentations gained hope by trusting in the promise that God would bear his burden. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Can you see why the timing and the location of those incredible and iconic verses are so important and are so integral to their power? Many of us know these verses and they're the kind of, uh, kind of Bible verses that you see on a tea towel. And I googled it. There was literally tea towels saying grace to your faithfulness. And good, it's important. Because the standalone verses, they are brilliant. Yes, great is your faithfulness. Your mercies are new every morning. But at the back of 22 verses of lament, these verses are dynamite. I ran a marathon once. It was really hard. I actually don't recommend it. Um, and my wife and son faithfully waited for me at mile 17, which was, it was tough. When I saw them, my heart rejoiced. My weary soul, my weary limbs got an extra boost of energy, which I really needed. It was the best thing. They were there, they'd waited faithfully, they had a banner, go daddy, you can do this. I was just overjoyed. Now, if my wife and child were waiting for me when I'd just come back from the shops with a banner saying, you can do this, daddy, I mean, I'd be pleased, but it wouldn't have the same kind of impact. It wouldn't mean as much. God does not cause suffering so that his mercies are meaningful. But I do think his mercy is meaningful because we live in a world of suffering. In verse 24, right after great is your faithfulness, your mercies are new every morning, the writer says, the Lord is my portion and therefore I will hope in him. This idea of God being Israel's portion is uh, like a founding principle of God's people. In Numbers we learn that when God allocated parts of the promised land to the children of Israel, Aaron the priest and the Levites, the tribe of priests that Aaron belonged to, were not given any land. And God says to them, you shall have no inheritance in this land, neither shall you have a portion among them, because I am your portion and your inheritance among the people of Israel. 
In Psalm 73, the psalmist writes, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. What does it mean for God to be our portion and for God to be our portion in the midst or in response to our suffering? Well, what are the alternatives and how do they stack up? For Israel, the portion was their inheritance. It was their means of sustenance. It was their security and their status. Another way of describing it is to say that it was their identity. Today, we build our identity out of so many things. The things themselves are usually fine. Job, wealth, relationships, friendships, knowledge. In themselves, these things are good and we are blessed to have them. When we elevate them to the status of identity, when they become our sustenance, our security, our status, then they're quickly shown to be poorly designed for that purpose and they let us down. When God is our portion, we are blessed, but we're also free. We don't have to manage the inheritance. We don't have to maintain it. We don't have to worry about it running out or not being quite what we expected. How do we live like God is our portion? And how does that impact on our lamentations? Now, I'm not an expert here, and I don't think I'm particularly good at relying on God or seeing him as the portion for my life. But I imagine that we need to sideline some of the other things that currently fill that space. Some of those things that we have elevated to the status of conferring identity rather than simply being a blessing from God. How do you know when your relationship status or your job or even your suffering has become your identity? I don't know where that line is drawn for you. I'm not always sure where that line is for me. But to practice relying on God more, to practice seeing him as our portion and gaining the benefits of that, we can do worse than following in the footsteps of the prophet and telling ourselves the truth. I say to myself, the prophet writes, the Lord is my portion, my security, my sustenance. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion. And as we say this day by day, hour by hour, as a prayer, as a meditation, that truth will become more real to us. And in the midst of our suffering, the truth will show those other things that claim to form our identity, to be what they really are, weak imitations of the love and power, faithfulness and mercy of a God who knows and sustains us. The God who created all things is my portion in and out of suffering. There's much more to explore in this lamentation, and I'm not going to do it now. The writer shares more about wisdom, about how to receive and access God's goodness. There is a call to repentance and to worship. Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts and hands to God in heaven. There are more descriptions of God's just anger. There's a recognition of the harm caused to us by others. There are descriptions of God coming to the rescue. You came near when I called you. But I want to end here with an encouragement that we can be a conduit of grace to others in their suffering. We can pull on the, on the handbrake, pull the ripcord on that parachute and say, but this I remember. 
and I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. And if today you are in need of a but this I remember moment, if you are still lamenting, then as we head into prayer, take with you the promise that his mercies never end and they are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness to you. He is your portion and that is why today we can hope in him. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your promise to us. We come before you grieving and in pain with our own lament or supporting those who are lamenting right now. And we trust you, Father God. Great is your faithfulness. Thanks for listening to the St. John's Hoxton podcast. New talks will be uploaded every week from all of our services. And do check out our website, stjohnshoxton.org.uk, for more information.